Welcome to the Swim Swam Podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. Joining me today, we've got a very special guest. He is the head coach at the HPC Ontario in Canada. He has coached some of the world's best and brightest athletes for the last two decades in the United Kingdom, in Canada, around the world. Today, we've got Coach Ben Tidley. How you doing, Coleman? Thanks a lot for having me. Awesome to be here. It's exciting to sit down and talk with you. You know, you sent me a little bit about your coaching history, and I knew you had worked with some athletes. We talked to Liam Tancock. We talked to ben, uh, James Gibson, you know, and, and they had both, I think James swam with you, and then, or Liam swam with you. Liam swam uh, with I, sorry. I, Liam swam with James, and then James coached Liam. I'm getting yeah. I'm getting all my wires crossed. Yeah. But so anyway. no, James. Uh, James came to to swim with me. I think in '98, and probably mm. swam with me for probably at least eight years. I would think I coached I coached James or Gibbo as I know him, but James as as you know him, yeah. and um, and Liam Liam came a couple of years later. Liam maybe came through in about 2000. And, to 2003 and ended up coaching Liam same thing for eight to 10 years back in the yeah. UK. Yeah. that's. Yeah. So you've, you've worked with a lot of athletes though. Um, the, I, I want to start with the present. We, we took a little dip into the past, but um, obviously there's a, been a couple of pretty big things happening in, in Toronto. Um, the first of which being that HPC was sh- shut down temporarily now you're back up and running. Can you give me some details just about managing that situation? Um, I mean, it's probably a situation very similar to what a lot of people are having to deal with out there in, in the world of swimming and just being able to get back into facilities. We're very, very fortunate here in Canada um, that our facility is still open to, to elite performers. And, um, but with that, there's obviously then a lot of responsibility with regards to temperature checks, questionnaires, um, testing. And um, we just had an athlete who after the Christmas break had been to to some family, not outside of Canada, within Canada, and came back and started reported, reporting symptoms as soon as she said to us that that's what was happening. She was, you know, removed, if you like, from the, from the pool and, and we got her some tests and everything else and everybody else continued training. And when her tests came back that she she did have COVID, then we had to sort of, us and Swimming Canada had to deep dive a little bit, see who was close contact. We obviously had to leave the facility that morning. You know, the kids had literally just finished in the weight room. We didn't even get a chance to get in the pool. It was sort of that time frame of things in the morning. Uh-huh. And, um, and then people were out for, you know, five or six days, or I'll be honest, up to 14, 15 days, depending on who they were, and the close contact. So it was definitely a, an interesting experience, a frustrating one for a lot of the athletes, because obviously they've spent a lot of time out of the water already. Athletes in Canada, I think our high performance director, John Atkinson, did some sort of study where I think the Canadian athletes had been out for almost twice as long as any other country with regards to their high performers. And I know there's exceptions to that, but um, we were we were completely out of the water from mid probably March all the way through till probably June we were, and I mean zero swimming. So 
and there's a lot of clubs out there in Canada right now that are still not able to swim. You know, it's it's a very f- select few that are fortunate enough to to do so. So that sort of added a, a stress, if you like, to to some of the athletes in terms of well, we've just come off a bit of a Christmas and New Year um, break. We only had four or five days at both of those, but to have to be forced out, not forced out, but to have to. Uh, uh, go with all the protocols and sit out of the water until it was all resolved. Everyone understood why they were doing it. Um, you know, when you're dealing with kids aged 14 to, to 27, and even like me, then it's uh, rationale and common sense don't always come into it. And sometimes you've just got to do the best you can. And so that was one of those situations. Yeah. And and like you said, uh, it's been one of those situations. I think other people have encountered similar ones, but you know, it's, can be kind of scary, certainly be frustrating, um, but I'm, I'm glad to hear everyone's doing all right. And you guys are back in the water now. That's certainly seems like a positive direction to move in. And then the other big news from Canada is that, um, you know, your Olympic trials are maybe postponed. The format's totally different. And now they're, they've pre-selected um, a number of, of individuals, of athletes for the Canadian Olympic team. Um, you know, as Swim Canada is adjusting to, you know, the world we're living in today, um, how are you as a coach, you know, who, who works with all these athletes who are trying to make the team, um, how have you adjusted to these new trial cuts and then also, you know, the, the athletes being pre-selected to be on the team? Well, there's a, there's a lot there. I think it's it's all relatively new, so it's still getting worked through, I would say, certainly with regards to the pre-selection. And, and people sometimes would think that, you know, athletes getting pre-selected, that they'd be super happy, that it's a great thing. And But actually, there's challenges to that. You know, when you're dealing with young people and they swim with their peers and, and a lot of our athletes swim with their rivals, you know, they're their friends, they're their teammates, but they're their rivals when you're looking for individual spots. And Having some people get spots, some people not get spots. That means only one spot's available for for X number of athletes. Then going for the for the remaining um, entry into the Olympics, you know, sometimes that's hard. Also on the people who get pre-selected, not just the people who who are on the outside, maybe looking in. Um, I actually try to take positives from from everything. If you know a circumstance is given to us, for example, the trials being postponed six weeks or so. Well, for us coming off the back of Christmas, New Year and then COVID, it's um, an extra time is a gift for everybody. And time, you know, as the saying goes, time is the one thing that we never get more of. It's actually probably the most valuable thing that we have. So everybody having more time to be able to get better um, to whatever level that may be, I think, is a, is a positive first off on the postponement. And I think with the kids who are on the outside looking in of those pre-selections, it takes time to process, you know, and I met with a couple of them late last week and early this week in terms of take a few days to process it. It's okay not to be okay with something that blindsides you, you know, particularly that something is not in your control, but you need to understand that something that's not in your control. Yes. It, it can hit you. You know, it's, it's like a sucker punch, you know, it can hit you and it can sting for a little bit, but it can't stay with you. You have to move past it. You have to process it. And then you have to look for the positives in, in what's going to happen. And, and when I think of the positives from a national team perspective, and even from the, the individual athletes, um, 
they're going to try really hard now to get those one spots in, and, 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 and that's going to help our team. That's going to help our freestyle relays. That's going to help our um, medley relays. As long as people can process it and move past it and use it in the right way. And I, and I think that's what we're, we're trying to do as best we can. Now, does that, will that affect some swimmers participating in trials? So like, you know, for example, Sydney Pickram, who's pre-selected in three events already, will, will she even swim at trials now? Or will she kind of just focus solely on the Olympics? You know, or, you know, for that situation applies to, I think, a few, a few swimmers you work with. Yeah, so I think six athletes were pre-selected and we have four of them here with us. And um, no, they, would, they will still race, race at our trials. I mean, our trials really is a, is a bunch of time trials. There's no, there's no finals. We're not able to go down that route just yet here in Canada. Um, so we're doing the best we can with that. Um, but we, we don't have many chances to race, Conan. We haven't raced since the very beginning of March last year. So it's, it's coming up on 11 months, give or take, that we haven't raced. And if you actually take the way that Swimming Canada now has the format, which I, I do believe is the best format we're capable of doing right now within Canada that um, <laughs> we have less racing days between now and the Olympics than the length of the Olympics itself. So to answer your question, yes, Sydney Pickram will race the trials. They all will race the trials. I think the more opportunities we get to actually stand up and race it is, well, we're going to need it to be perfectly blunt. Um, our, tri our trials, or at least our, our first stage, I think is a, a, a five-day meet, but it's one swim, you know, and then it's mm -hmm. it's done. So it's not like you can learn to make corrections. It's you have one chance to show what you can do, not having raced for 13 months prior to diving in the pool. So you have to, I'm not saying temper expectations. I do believe when we get to Tokyo and, and, and fingers crossed, all of that takes place. And obviously that's the way everybody needs to think that's involved in, in the sport that um, we need the practice to be perfectly honest. We need the practice. So, you know, our trials, whilst it's five days, it's one swim, you know, someone like Sydney, yes, she has, three, she's going to have more, she's going to have three swims just in the 200 IM alone, as opposed to the three swims that she may have at the trials for events. And that's it. So yes, we will race. Um, will they need to prepare for it as much as some of the others? Probably not. But again, given the amount of time that we've just been training, training, looking at the same black line, training, um, giving these kids an opportunity to stand up and do something and, and return as close to normal as possible, I think is a very positive thing. So, no, we'll take any racing opportunities that are given to us, Colin, that is for sure. As soon as you said that, I was like, man, that was kind of a dumb question. But, <laughs> but you gave a great answer, um, and that makes complete sense. Uh, and that kind of that's a great transition into, into getting inside your, your mind as a coach, you know, since – since you haven't raced, especially since trials are now just timed finals, like you said, they don't get to make corrections within those races. I mean, how have you adjusted in these last 11 months um, within the parameters of, of, you know, Canadian safety and um, sticking to all these guidelines? How have you adjusted training at the HPC Ontario to get them prepared for meet like trials and or Olympics? 
I, I couldn't, uh, time will tell. I couldn't really tell you at this point. I could tell you what we've tried to do. And what we've tried to do is um, at least not, probably not so much till this point. We had quite a few athletes out of the ISL, which was great. They got some racing opportunities. Okay, it's not long course. Okay, it might not necessarily be in their best events, but they at least got off the blocks. They at least got to feel somewhat normal as a competitive swimmer. Those juices got flowing. You know, they get to stand up and say, right, I'm racing you. I don't care who you are, you know, let's go. And I think that's awesome. That's the thing that we're kind of missing. And there's some athletes who really, really need that and thrive on that. Um, there's other athletes who you can run time trials for, you know, uh, younger kids, for example, you could organize some time trials within your own session and they'd swim as fast in those things as they would do if they were in an Olympic final or a world championship final or whatever it might be. There's other people and usually the higher end performers who they sometimes need something on the line to bring out that extra one or 2% at the top. And I think we have quite a few of those in the group at the moment. So until this point right now, we've mainly been focused on training. Um, trying to mix it up a little bit. It's been, you know, it's been refreshing. We had Maggie McNeil with us for a couple of months and that refreshed things a little bit from a sort of underwater standpoint to show the kids what's possible. Um, from now, we're actually trying to organize a lot more time trials, a lot more racing opportunities for our kids, but it's always within our own training time. So it's, it's never, there's an organized meet. We can't run anything with officials. We can't even invite in other athletes who don't train in the facility because of the COVID protocols and everything else that are in place. So it's going to be very much about just, Hey, find a way to get it done, get a suit on, stand on the blocks. It might be 9am on a Friday. It might be 1030 on a Saturday morning, but you stand up and let's go. I don't mind what event it is, but get back to being a racer, get back to racing. Um, even if it's only the clock in some instances. And so we've, we've got a whole schedule now mapped out where we have at least two, probably three, three session meets. Sounds so terrible when I say a swim meet and it's three sessions, but like a Friday morning, a Friday night and a Saturday morning, all within our own pool space where we'll get the electronic timing in and we'll race long course race. We'll dive in and do something long course. Some people, it will be by themselves. Some people, they will actually have a race, you know, like a, the women's 100 freestyle, the, the top 400 freestylers, for example, is so they can they can race. The women's 100 backstroke, Kylie Mask can race. Taylor Rook or Jane Hannah, they can have a race. But it is a challenge and you do have to, I'm not saying manipulate variables or people, but you need to be careful of, you know, overdoing that stimulus, racing the same person or training against the same person every single day and not having an outlet outside of that is a, a tough thing emotionally for people through through this sort of challenging time. So we're doing the best we can. We'll organize our own time trials in training. We'll have the trials meet and the second stage meet to, to race, hopefully some other people. Um, but that's just it. That's just the way it is. And is it hard for these kids to see people around the world racing and, you know, in countries like China or Japan or Russia doing times as fast or faster than they've ever done? Yes, that's difficult. You know, is it tough for them to see the pro series going on in the US or meets in France or Spain or Italy, even though they're far harder hit with COVID than, than Canada is? Yes, it is. And so it's it's very much about just trying to communicate with the athletes, help them understand where we're at, what we can control. And also in the, you know, the wider world, understand that Canada is a great place to live. Have you ever been to Canada? Have you been to Toronto? I've been to uh, Montreal and oh, I would, beautiful I, city. I, I'd live there. Yeah, yep. it, it, it stole me. 
you and me both, very European, big fan of Montreal. And my, my wife's French, actually. And, and, and so big fan of Montreal. And um, so there's, there's, there's benefits to living in a country like Canada. They've handled the pandemic as well as they probably could, particularly when I compare it to other countries around the world without singling any out. They, it's a clean, safe place. You know, it's, a, it's got great education, um, all of those things. The flip side of that is what makes all of that possible. It's quite cautious. It's, it's you know, tries to be smart with what it does. And so the fact that we're not able to race, we understand it's for the greater good of, of, of the country. And, and we're fortunate to live in this car. I mean, I'm, a, I'm not a Canadian. I'm, I'm a Brit. And, you know, many of my Australian coaches, coaching colleagues always used to say, well, you know, when you finally get the tattoo of the queen off your ass, you can come down and coach in Australia. But the... The reality is that it's an awesome place to live, but you've then got to understand there's, you know, you, you pay for that awesomeness to a certain extent. And so we'll deal with the situation the best we can. The the athletes are, they're all great kids. They're all smart. They all think about what they want to do. And so we'll get through it, you know? Yeah. You, you read my mind. The, your answer just brought up two questions that I was, uh, that were next on my plate. The first one was, as you mentioned, you know, you've got, you've got a handful of the best athletes, not just in Canada, but in the world, um, in this training center, racing head to head every day. I mean, we've, we've certainly heard about situations like this in the States where, you know, you, you've got Connor Dwyer and Michael Phelps and Peter Vanderkale race all training together. And, and their coach is like, yeah, I have to separate them some days. Like they get, they get too competitive and then it's, it's just too much. And they can't, we, they can't race every day. And so I was going to ask, you know, it's like, does it, is, is that the situation there where you, like you said, you have to manipulate things, you have to change it around because you, these are the top athletes and they might get burnt out just trying to beat each other every day. Yes, it is. It is a challenge and it is something that has to be managed, not just by me, but by them, them themselves as well. And, and I mean, it's a blessing, you know, it's a, it's definitely an advantage having, having a lot of the best kids in the same place. That's exactly what I tried to, to create when I came here in 2012 is that they didn't have that. There wasn't really much of a history of that, certainly not in Toronto. Um, and we started with a bunch of athletes like your Chantel Van Landigams and Sandrine Mainvilles, Michelle Williams and, and Penny, a very young 12-year-old Penny Alexiak sort of feeding into that. But we started with that same philosophy and mentality. And, and, and a big part of me starting trying to get those best kids going head to head was that at the time we, th we thought that it was unlikely that athletes were going to be able to win medals individually at a Worlds or an Olympics in the short space of time that we had between getting them all together in like 2013, 14, in the lead up to 2016. And our best chance was in, was in a relay, was in relays. And so we actually sold that racing against each other as a as, as their main advantage, that we could practice things, relay exchanges, tactics, um, practicing getting faster each and every day. The, the reality of, of what's fast as opposed to the perception of what's fast is, is what a, a really good training group can change. So someone might be in a club by themselves and think that they're doing well. And then they come for a visit into a center or a big program, like one of the situations you mentioned, and all of a sudden they're, 
you know, 15 seconds behind on 200 meter repeats. And they're like, what the heck is going on here? And so that mentality works great when you're building a relay culture and you're trying to maximize the chance of success in an event like that. The dynamic shifts slightly when they become focused on individual events and their, their competitors are each other to a certain extent. Um, but I think that way of still always selling the relay goals, and that's been a big part of, of my goal this last four or five years within Canada, starting really at the, probably at the Pan Am, Pan Am Games in, two, I get confused, Pan Am, Pan Pax, Pan Am Games in Toronto in 2015 was the, you know, that relay culture of, well, let's, this is how we're going to achieve success. And once you have that, you know, Bill Sweetnam always used to say that a, a country's relay success really tells you about that country's um, success on the world scene as a swimming nation. And so by building up those relays, you then have people pop out into other events. You have Kylie Mass and the medley really pop out to backstrokes. You have the freestyle girls, Penny Alexiak pop out or Taylor Rook pop out or Kyla Sanchez pop out. So um, to answer your question, yes, it can be a challenge to manage. Um, I'm not going to say it's always easy to do, but people need to understand that at the end of the day, certainly here, we're all on the same team. We're all trying to get to the same goals and we're going to be better by pushing each other than we are by being afraid of each other. So um yeah, it seems to work so far, so good. Touch wood, but you never know. Is, I mean, <clears throat> feel free to push off, I'm, but I am curious. You know, is there has there been a situation uh, that you that sticks out to you in in that realm that you've had to manage over the last five years that that you know that, that you can share that that was a human moment or you know something that's like okay, we need to something needs to change here. Um. Rarely, rarely. And you're right. I probably wouldn't tell you even if there was one. I wouldn't give you a specific <laughs> example. There's a few things I don't do. I never big up swimmers to anyone to say this is what they're going to do and they're going to be really fast. I'll big up the person. I won't big up the performance, but I also <laughs> won't tell you anything bad either. So, um, not, but, but to be perfectly honest with you, I can't, I mean, there'll be little things where, Okay, I'll use an example which then turned into a positive, and I won't use any of the current athletes. That's a way of me being more politically correct. That Perfect. <laughs> in 2000, at the trials in 2016, um, we had the top four girls. It was none of the girls. Actually, Penny was one, but there wasn't a Taylor, a Kyler, or a Rebecca Smith. Or, there was none of those people. It was some of the other names I earlier mentioned earlier on. And we got the top four finishes, one, two, three, four in the women's hundred freestyle. So the relay was the four girls who had been training together. That was their goal. Um, what can we do? But they obviously all wanted an individual spot as well. And uh, a girl called Sandrine Mainville, who I'd use, and she's a fabulous young woman. She's a lawyer now in Montreal. Um, she actually let me stay in her apartment. Me and my wife stayed in her apartment um, when the quarantine was eased off back in the summer. And, um, she was, she's a very competitive young woman. I mean, she's a, she's a high powered lawyer now. And, um, and she was very upset about finishing third out of those four girls and missing the individual spot. And she comes back to our little part of the, you know, our, our ready area, if you like, around the swim down pool and, and was, and was extremely unhappy, was upset. Um, and my message to her was, it's okay. It's okay to be upset. If you weren't upset, then really this wasn't, maybe wasn't something that was important to you, you know? And uh, 
And she processed it and it took maybe a couple of hours or maybe a day, but then she comes back in. I think I've got a little visitor here. <laughs> Say bonjour. Bonjour. Okay, this is again. Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> again, you need to go upstairs, love. Yeah, you do. Can you go upstairs? I'll come see you in a bit. You're going to rest there? Um, oh, she wants a hug. Okay, this is going to take a while. <laughs> no problem. Um, anyway, so she processed it. And obviously the other girls, the girls who had finished first and second, it was tough to be around, maybe Sandrine at that, at that point, because not just because Sandrine was upset, but because they felt, well, this is my friend who, you know, I get it. I've been on the other side of that, X, Y, Z. So, um, but then she turned it around once she'd processed it. It's a bit like the when we said with the pre-selection and people understanding that. Sometimes things take time to process. She processed it. She moved past it. And she understood then, right, my goal now is to try to go to the Olympics and try to win a medal, something she probably never dreamed was possible, and, and do my part for the team. And her turning that around and her turning that into a positive, and she ended up leading off in, in, in the final of the Olympics with the best time and, and setting the team up for success that's what I'll remember from it. You know, I won't remember that. Well, I do clearly do remember because I just told you the story I, uh, that she was upset after that trials. But I think again, if you use things and turn them into positives, that's all you can do. So. Yeah. The, it's a great anecdote. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. Uh, and so, so then my, my second question that came from, you know, a, a former answer Um you know, you talked about your Brit. You coached in Britain for so long. You coached so many elite athletes who are now some of some of whom are now elite coaches. Mel Marshall, James Gibson. Um, the, I mean, the, the the list goes on. But um, in 2012, you came to Swim Canada, and I, I, I got to know why. You know what 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 drew you away from Britain um, to Canada, especially after being on Brit. You know, the head Olympic coach for Britain in 2008, being on the Olympic staff and four consecutive Olympics for Britain. Um, you know, what, why the change for you? Uh, total honest. I married a Canadian. <laughs> that was the first marriage though, Coleman. So we'll brush <laughs> over that real quick. Okay. Uh, I married, I married a Canadian, but the main thing other than that was that I'd lived. Have you ever been to Loughborough? No, I haven't. I lived in Loughborough for, I went there for university in 1996, started coaching in 96, and um, I lived there all the way through to 2012. I don't know any small towns in, hey, oh, we've got a visitor again. <laughs> I don't know any small towns in, uh, in, the, in the US, to be honest, but it's a small town. And Loughborough's okay. awesome. It's an awesome university town, and um, it's great for studies. It's great for sport. It's, it's the main sports center in the UK. It's not that exciting a place to live, Coleman. And so I, I'll be totally honest. You know, I'd achieved a lot in, in coaching and been all different sorts of head coaches and medals and everything else. And I, I just wanted to live somewhere that was a bigger city. I wanted to live in a big city. I wanted to go to watch Raptors basketball games. I wanted to be able to get the, go watch a baseball game. Do you, I wa wanted do you watch Raspers? Raspers, Raptors, <laughs> basketball. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So go to see the basketball and, and, and eat out at different restaurants as opposed to, you know, the restaurant that your, your buddy owned and you sort of go there all the time. And so uh, that's really the main reason I wanted to live somewhere different. I wanted to live in a big city. And 
there's not that many coaching jobs that elite coaching jobs that are available in, in big cities. And they started recruiting me here probably early in 2012, like uh, January, February type time when they knew I'd married a Canadian and, um, and that's it. They brought me here and, and, and for how long we'll see it's, it's, it's been, it's certainly been an enjoyable ride and it's a fabulous place to live. Um, but that's what brought me here. Big city, the light, the, what's it called? The lights of the big city or whatever it would be. Whatever that saying is, I wanted yeah. to live somewhere that wasn't Loughborough. <laughs> Makes total and I love, sense. And I love Loughborough. I love Loughborough. Let's get that out the way first. But <laughs> yeah, so it's a change of scenery. To, I mean, again, makes total sense. Um, and I'm I'm with you. You know, I I moved from a small town to uh, to Austin, Texas, because Mel Stewart, my boss, lives here, and because I wanted I I wanted to change the scenery too. I wanted that big city experience, and uh, yeah. yeah, I've been here for a while, and it's been great so far. Um, okay, so but we've got about fifteen minutes, I think. Um, and so I want to talk to you about, you sent me a document that includes the top 10 tips, sort of, for female freestyle development. Um, and we don't, we don't need to go through every one, but I want to start first off with just uh, how, how did you develop these top 10 tips and, and why did you develop these tips? What was the importance of this for you? Um. <laughs> I'd be careful about putting too much importance into that, Coleman, to be honest. I just sent you that through so you had a bit of information about, about me and my process of thinking. That talk, uh, a friend of mine, one of my roommates, early door roommates, is a guy called Fred Vernu, who coaches uh, Maria Belmonte in, in, in Spain. And we were out there for a training camp prior to the Mare Nostrum, I think 2018, 2019, pre-COVID. And he asked me if I'd do a talk to the Spanish coaches. But he only asked me the day before. So that document that you're referring to was actually typed up over a cerveza in a Spanish bar the <laughs> night before we spoke. And I didn't have anything planned. So I actually made that up on the day. If you were to ask me the 10 tips, I actually could not even tell you one of them. So um, I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it's what I believe. But I can't remember exactly what the document <laughs> is. So if you remind me of one, I can talk to it a little bit if you'd like. This is excellent. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a couple at you and just you know we'll we'll uh, we'll talk shop because that's what the swim nerds want. Okay, so number one on this list, it's not about sprint. 100 and 200 focus ability to produce power but hold endurance. Okay, yeah. So I think it was mainly referring to to freestyle again. I don't I don't think. I've coached people like Therese Alshammer and and Liam Tancock and James Gibson who all were sprinters. Um, but I actually don't think I ever trained anyone to be a sprinter. I, I think my, my program is very quality focused. We do do an awful lot of fast swimming on a very regular basis, but I feel like we also do quite a lot. You know, our session this morning meters was like 7,800 meters or something. Right. And I think even yeah, the, the sprinty type swimmers were, were around seven K that, um, and it was mostly kick and it was fast kick, but they, um, but I don't think I've ever coached anyone to be a sprinter. And I think to the detriment sometimes of maybe a couple of athletes, if I think back and I think of, you know, I could give you great examples for, for Gibbo when, when I've done a set, which has not helped him 
at all to try to achieve the goals. But in my mind, I thought, well, this is logical. It's rational. It makes sense. And I have to take you, it'd be a different podcast for me to take you through that set, but it'd be probably pretty useful for your, for your coaches that listen to these things to, to work through, because I thought at the time I'd nailed it and it, and it wasn't, you know, I was, I was trying to make someone's weaknesses stronger instead of maximizing their strengths. And, um, you know, people like Francesca Halsall, for example, had I, you know, kind of dropped off the 200 meter events and she broke British record in 200 meter events and medley events. But if I'd focused more on the sprint earlier, could she have achieved more? She probably could have, you know, but at the time you, you do what you think is best. You're trying to think relays, you're trying to think individuals. And so, yes, to, long story short, to, to answer your question, I don't think I've ever trained anyone as a drop dead sprinter. It's never like I've had someone swimming a, you know, 25, 30,000 meters a week type program it's always more in your 45 50 55 60 depending on who they are type area meters not yards when people tell me yeah i did a, a, an 8000 8000 workout this morning people from the us that yards or meters they're like yards i'm like that's like 3000 meters long course if you count <laughs> up the sports. um so i believe that you need to be able to be fat this this day and age in swimming you need to be fast that there's, I know people are now pacing different things, you know, your Carl Chalmers or Raniomi to a certain extent, no hundred freestyles, Frere Anderson. They, 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 some people like to pace it more even paced and come back really strong. But the reality is all of those people are still fast. Should they be asked to do so? They are still fast. And you can take that from a 50 meter event. You can take that to the open water these days. You know, the, I think that um, when we we're at world champs, 2019, and I was looking at the results of the open water. I'm not into open water, Coleman, just so we're clear. I actually, <laughs> a big debate I used to have with a friend, a very good friend of mine called Sean Kelly, who's now the performance director in Spain. We used to say, and you're going back here 15 years, we used to say, well, who are the best swimmers in the world? And he's like, well, you know, uh, Park Taiwan, he's the best swimmer in the world, or Sun Yang. Or, and I'm mm -hmm. like, no, nah, it's the person that swims the 50 free or the 100 free. They're the best swimmer in the world. Because if I asked, Park Taiwan, if he wanted to swim the 200 free instead of the 400 free, he'd swim the 200. If I said you could do the 100 free, he'd choose the 100 instead of the 200. And if he could be a 50 freestyler, he'd choose the 50. And the phrase I used to Sean, I did it mostly to wind him up because he coached some Olympic medalists in the open water, was that uh, it's a terrible way of saying it. I apologize to any distance swimmers out there. And I don't truly believe this, but um, athletes go up the distances until they find a distance where their slowness becomes competitive. And I use those words intentionally to wind him up, but it's kind of true. If you're not fast enough to do a 53, you'll do a hundred. If you're not fast <laughs> enough to do a hundred, you'll go a two. If you can't swim an 800 free women, you'll go to open water. And if you can't do open water, yeah, you'll probably become a, a, a master swimmer. And I say that in jest. Probably do triathlons. Right? Well, that's exactly where it would go next. It would go to the tryhards for sure. And, uh, and again, I'm saying that slightly tongue in cheek, but, but even now in the open water, these guys are fast. You know, I remember the girl from the Netherlands and I'll, and I'll butcher her last name and I apologize to her, Sharon Van Wood, you, you know, the one I mean, anyway, Sharon. Yep. Sharon. And, and when she, when she won the Olympics, I think, I believe in the open water, 
she finaled in the 400 free or the 800 free. I, one of the two, I can't remember. She was really fast. And I remember at the world champs in 2019, standing with, with Fred again, and we were, he had a boy in the open water and we were looking at the results. They have the TVs around the pit areas and they flash up random events of thing. why that was up. I don't know. And Fred, Fred's boy finished in the top 10. Can't remember where, where you had to be to qualify for Tokyo. And he said something like out of the 10 athletes in the top 10 in the open water, I think it was eight, could have been nine. And his kid was the only kid that didn't have this. All had best times in the 1500 meters of 1450 or better, something like that. So my point being that even in the open water now, it isn't the same as when it was first introduced in, you know, 2000 and whenever it was, 2004 or 2008, probably 2008 maybe. Um, that, you know, the endurance type person, the kid who can just swim up and down and never really slows down and just keeps going. Those people don't win those events anymore. Yes, they, you know, um, Philip Lucas, for example, in France, and I know Germany's got a very good base now for the open water and distance type events, but those guys can still move. You know, it's, it's who at the end of the race can finish with a kick for the last two, three, 400 meters, whatever their tactic is, they still go fast, whether it's in a pool or in the open water. Usmaluli is a good example um, of that. So probably going all the way back, and this is classic Ben, I never really answer a question. I'll just start talking and forget what I was talking <laughs> about. But to answer your question about freestyle and it being be, being fast, but being able to hold that speed for a, for a longer duration of time, I do believe that's, unless there's an athlete that comes to you that is just this pure sprint beast and you, and you need to then play to that person's strengths, it is very much about the individual. Um, I do believe it's, it's about being able to swim fast and how for how long can you swim fast? Um, did that answer at all, Coleman, or did I just? I, I, I don't know, but I liked it. I like that answer. <laughs> um, that was that was great insight. Uh, we're, I think, my biggest takeaway from that is that you've got some great stories from back in the day, and we're gonna we're just gonna have to bring you back onto the podcast to to sit down and stories. hear some more stories. I could tell you stories, or you literally could do a stories podcast. I could tell you about a story where Mel Marshall once at four a.m. when she was swimming for me, dressed up in uh, the scream mask. You know the scream mask, <laughs> yeah, back in Loughborough, and she hid on my route to the pool in the morning. And uh, so I'm going to the pool to open up. This is way back. We just trained in a four, four, when, when Gibbon and Mel were for me, we had a four lane, 25 yard pool, asbestos ridden. That's all we had. That's how Loughborough started um, off until we sort of got enough good swimmers to get a center. And she hid in some trees and the full story I'll give you, but long story short, we ended up running at each other. Me still thinking she was just some weirdo on a screen mask. My <laughs> fist, clenched and then she tails off and starts laughing and she's got a buddy hiding behind a uh, a trash can video in the whole thing i don't know if she's still got the video but um so if you want to do a podcast on stories Coleman, i'm your man some of them might not be quite pg rated but we'll see what happens we're doing a stories podcast all right we're down to five minutes here we're doing a stories podcast we're bringing ben back on but uh i i want to get through one more one more of these tips mm-hmm Let's see. The tips that uh, I can't remember. The tips that Ben doesn't really know, but they're, <laughs> they're good stuff. I'm going to go with number two. You say it's not about freestyle. It's about the individual athlete. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say, Ben? Well, I think that's true about anything. Um, 
you know, being from the UK, being f- and then working here in Canada, you can't waste talent, you know, and that's not me saying that other countries can afford to or that they do. But you can probably infer into my answer. That's probably what I think a lot of places do do where everybody just does the same thing. Everybody gets in. This is the, you know, you're training for the event. Well, there might be principles of the event, but it, it to achieve success, you've really got to find a way, unless it's a freak athlete that would have succeeded in any person's program, no matter what style of work they were doing. And, and this isn't me saying, you know, a certain way is a right way to do things. There's many different ways to skin a cat um, and, and, and get success in the sport as there is in life with anything. Um, but you need to try to figure out what works for that individual. Um, whether that be that person X, responds well to doing more kick or more volume or more pull paddles work, whether it be their racing pattern or their breathing pattern is breathing every two. You know, some people, when they breathe, create so much resistance, they slow right down. Other people, and I think of the people who breathe every two, someone like a Michael Phelps would be a good example, who if you put his head down and and he just went, Penny Alexiak's a great example. I'll use one that I know more about. If you just got her to do a, a dive 50 and you say, you can't breathe, you just go as fast as you can, it wouldn't actually be that fast. But if you got her to dive in and breathe fours and twos, she probably can go out the same sort of speed as she could do if she did a dive max 50. And so I just use that to illustrate that you need to treat the individual first. It isn't this is how I choose to swim an event. There might be principles, like I'm a, I mentioned before, I'm a big believer in being able to produce power, being able to go fast. Another of the things I really like, and it would be more in a training podcast, but is I'm a big believer in, in removal type work. It comes from a lot of my time around Australians and, and being influenced by them, but removal sets after quality sets, I'm a big believer on. It makes sense to me when I think about events in terms of, Yes, you want to be able to to produce lactate so you have the power to be able to go out, but you need to have a decent removal system for clearing that lactate for the back half of your races so you can then maintain the speed that I mentioned earlier on or in your your first point. So really, I think everybody needs to be treated as an individual. Lots of people have different challenges that we don't necessarily understand. You know, I've had conversations in the last 48 hours with athletes where I say, look, I can help you with 85% of stuff. I can put myself in, in your shoes, but unless, you know, my mom hasn't told me something, I've never been a 14 year old girl. And so my mindset, whilst I can put myself in their shoes and try to think how they'd react with certain ways of communication or certain ways that we're trying to explain what's happening, I'm not them. And so understanding the individual, how do people learn? How do people improve? Um, that's probably what I meant by by that number two, that it's not, you know, I've had, you know, technique. If you ask me to teach someone technique, I'd have to look at them, see how they swam, see what their strengths and weaknesses are. Taylor Rock doesn't swim freestyle the same way Penny Alexiak does. Those two girls are both six foot two. They don't swim the same way that Kyla Sanchez does, who's, I'll be generous, five foot seven or whatever, right? <laughs> fabulous, fabulous athlete, fabulous athlete, strong, dynamic, but different, different than six foot two. So you've got to treat people um, um, as individuals and try to find a way that really helps them achieve success. And, and, and it's different and it's hard and it's time consuming. And it, and it means that I can't have a group of 40 athletes in the pool for the way that I coach to work necessarily. Um, 
But yeah, that, that's probably what I meant by that. I've probably waffled again, Coleman, nine times out of 10. I thought that was a good answer. I, I had one quick question. You said you mentioned a removal set. Do you mean like a like an easy set to remove the lactic acid in between efforts? Um, yeah, it probably wouldn't be necessarily easy. It would probably be swimming somewhere around that threshold type, 30 okay. beats below max, 40 beats below max, depending on what energy systems or what classification of training you want to use. But yeah, we've, I don't know if you've ever seen us at maybe one of the, some of the pro series when you sometimes set your camera up down by the diving pit. And after our last race, our girls get in, in their suits and actually do a training set in the meet, in their suits, either mm -hmm. at race pace or kit. I'm a, a big fan of kick removal sets it's funny back in it's going back to stories but um if you've got time for this one so i was good friends with a lot of the coaches at the ais so john fowley um shannon rollison people like that and um and we went there in around 2005 2006 and we'd, we'd go there for a swim meet and i think it was probably a commonwealth games was that year as well and they invited me down there to speak and so i took some athletes and Pretty much I'd run like a few days workouts and then Shannon would run a few days workouts. I'd run a few days workouts. Shannon would run a few days workouts. And then after each workout, we as a staff, you know, the, the Australians trained with, with the Brits and then the staff would go into the back room and we'd put up the set and we'd chat about the set. Why did we do this? What was our rationale? And uh, I remember I went first and we did whatever quality set we did you know, dive 35s, push 50s, front end speed, whatever that, whatever the set was, I can't remember now, but something that elicited quite a bit of lactate into the system. And then, and then I did a big kick set afterwards. So most people would do the main set, they'd swim down and then they're done. Well, we kind of do something between that where they'd work something of a decent quality, of a decent duration. And that again would vary time of year, type of athlete, etc. cetera. Um, but we did it leg focused and I'd always done it leg focused. And I was probably influenced a little bit by, you know, I was very fortunate in the UK. And again, it's a different different story, different podcast, but being around people like Bob Trafine and Bill Sweetnam. And then I had a guy called Tim Kerrison, a sports scientist who was my sports scientist for a long time. And he actually now is the big dog in, in Tour de France, Team Sky or Team Ineos as it is now and all of that stuff. And really what Timo did is took a swimming a swimming plan to cycling because cycling before that was let's meet on a Sunday, let's have a ride, let's have a coffee and then let's go home. And they just, there wasn't necessarily a, a plan to everything other than taking a lot of drugs. So, um, <laughs> um, so we, anyway, we did the kick set and Shannon looked at me and he's like, I've never thought of, but he's like, we do the same thing. I'm like, great, you know, great, great minds, whatever. We joked around and he says, mm -hmm. but I've never done it kick. And I'm like, what do you mean? You've never done it kick. We always do it kick. He's like, I always do it pull. So he's like, why do you do it kick? And I said, well, they're the biggest muscles in the body. They're probably the first thing to go in a race. Um, so if I want to clear lactate, I'll probably focus on those areas more. I'm like, why do you always do pull? And he's like, I don't know. It's, it's just what we've always done. But I'd never thought of doing it pull. He'd never thought of doing it kick. And we're both world-class coaches. We both, you know. And uh, so anyway, long story short, we put bits, bits and pieces like that into certain types of the year and certain bits of the program. And uh, they're still fast. They're hard. Swimmers don't like it. You know, no one likes getting out after a quality effort when their lactate's high and then being asked to do something maybe at race pace. I've certainly found that you can swim as you go up the distances without referring to my previous comment. You can, you know, if you're swimming at 400 pay, you can you can remove lactate if you play with the variables of distance and time. If you're swimming at 400 pace, certainly 800 pace and for sure 1500 pace. 
I've always been interested in, can you clear lactate? And again, you have to manage, you have to manage the variables, but can you clear lactate while swimming at a hundred meter race pace? Like that for me is sort of the standard where I've, I've played around with it in bits and pieces. It's been a little bit successful. Sometimes I'd say I still haven't fully got my head around it, but that's my goal is to try. The goal would be to try to remove lactate while swimming race pace, you know, um, fi figure someone like Dennis Cottrell with Sun Yang. I remember a conversation and we're going off in a story here. So I hope you're okay for time. I'm going to be late for the dentist, but um, there was me, Tim Kerrison and Dennis Cottrell on the poolside in London, 2012. And I think it was, it was either after or just before Sun Yang broke the world record in the 1500 freestyle. And Timo had been working in cycling for, for a year or two, probably two years by then. And, um, and we were having a discussion. And when I say we, I was definitely the least participant in the conversation. I would, you know, I was listening more than I was talking. And they were saying that, you know, Timo was saying, well, what does it take to win, to win the Tour de France? Well, they worked out that at a certain altitude, do you know much about cycling, Coleman? I, I know very little. Okay. It's hard that <laughs> they worked out that unless you're going to take a lot of drugs that you needed to, um, the winners of the Tour de France, they looked at the analytics a little bit and the winners of the Tour de France, and I might be butchering this, Timo, so if I am, I apologize, that they found that it, the winners of the Tour de France came from people who could produce a certain wattage for a certain duration at a certain altitude on a certain incline. And that's the difference, you know, you'd get, you've got 130 odd riders in the Tour de France when they're on the flat and when they're doing all that stuff. When you get up into the mountains and it splits off to 10, then it's six, then it's three, and then one goes again. And so what Timo tried to do, and I can't remember that the cyclist at the time, maybe it was Chris Froome or Brad Bradley Wiggins, I can't remember, but they, um, that they, they worked out all of this wattage. And so they then trained to be able to produce that wattage on this gradient at this altitude. So they do a lot of training at altitude on the steep hills and they do a burst. Let's just call it a burst. They do a burst and then the rivals would effectively be forced to try and keep up. Because if you drop back in cycling, that's usually you're done with drafting and slipstreaming and everything else. They then settle into a rhythm again or a tempo that was, was hard, but wasn't, the hardest that the athlete set in the tempo could do. And then they'd go again. So you drop a bunch of people on the gradient by, by producing a high wattage. You then settle into a good tempo, a good wattage, where the goal would be that your rivals are busting their butt to try to keep up. And you're somewhat recovering whilst they're working. Does that make sense? And so yeah. then you go again. And so Dennis then piped in and obviously i've got nothing to say about this distance men type situation we've actually got a girl now called summer mcintosh who's going to be really really good um but she's only 14 but really really good that um dennis pipes in and says well that reminds me of a set that i did with sonia and the set was again i apologize dennis if i'm butchering it slightly but australian type style i don't know if you know you know australians they love like 3100s on 140 for example their heart rate sets bob trafine type style goes back your perkins days and all of those guys and um and uh so but but dennis sort of had a slight twist on it where he'd start with a dive i think it was a dive 300 and sun yang would go like 247 right something super super fast 
Then they do the 3100s with Sun Yang swimming at 1500 type pace. So whether that, you know, 57s, 58s, whatever it might be. And then they finished the set with a push 200. And I think Sung Yang pushed like 152 or something, right? After these 3100s. So the dive 300 at the start to put the lactate in, the 3100s in the middle, effectively working hard, but at a speed at which he was recovering. And then he could go again. And if you look back at that Olympic final in the 1500, that's pretty much what happened. He went fast at the start. Everyone else then was busting their ass to try to keep up whilst he's pretty much recovering. Now he's a world-class swimmer and everything else, but yeah. everyone else is trying to keep up. And then boom, he goes again at the end and breaks the world record. And the two philosophies, the two training systems were exactly the same for two different sports. And I just thought that was, was pretty interesting, you know? So yeah. it's probably got zero relevance to what you asked me. Back <laughs> there you go. That's fascinating. I mean, I love that. That's that my mind is blown. Um, but that's amazing. Ben, you're going to be late for the dentist, but I appreciate it. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and sit down and talk with me for a little bit. And we're bringing you back. So uh, expect an email in the coming months. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Well, I do want to say this. I want to say thanks to you, Gom. Now, I'm not a big media guy. I don't do stuff like this, to be honest, very often because I'm a big believer that, you know, there's there's nothing that can be that can come from saying what's going to happen, you know? Oh yeah. Such and so they're going to do well, or Canada's going to win medals. There's nothing going to come from that good. It, it just builds pressure. So I'd prefer to stay under the radar, but I do think, and I do think it needs to be said to you and, and everyone there at swim swam with most kids around the world, not being able to race and compete, you know, they're losing touch with the sport a little bit and having you produce content and having your, your website produce stories and keep people interested and everything else. I think it's invaluable. And I, and I see it every day um, just in terms of kids keeping up with what's happening around the world. Without that, it would be, it would be, the world would be a harder place, a tougher place if it wasn't for you doing what you're doing. So thank you from the sport of swimming. I, I appreciate that, Ben, and, and Swim don't Swim cut, appreciates that. Don't you that cut as that well. out. You keep that in. Don't you cut that out. I, I would never cut out praise to me. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to the Swim Swim podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.